together. Father, as we now turn our attention to this, your most holy word, and we see something of the glory of your Son, something that you love to show, we pray that the eternal Spirit this morning would help us that we might see something of the glory of Christ, that glory that was veiled for many, that glory that was then revealed in his suffering and servants for the sake of sinners. May you help us now. May you keep us from distraction. May you cause your word to sink deeply down into our minds, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. It was Marvin Vincent commenting on this particular passage, which we know is the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. He said the following quote, There was a fact and a power in that vision, which mere radiance in the appearance of the dead patriarchs could not wholly convey. A revelation of the deity breaking out in that glorified face and form. The long-awaited Messiah. He's here, and the gospel records give, give testimony to the fact of the fulfilling of all that the Old Testament had spoken, all that the Old Testament had communicated, everything that was said in the Old Testament, pointing all of the patriarchs and the prophets of old forward to this time of which the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, would come take to himself flesh, prophesied of old, foretold by the prophets, demonstrated in the types and shadows of the Old Testament and its tabernacles and all of the different ceremonial aspects of that particular time and place, now here stands on this mountain glorified before human people, sinners. Three people in particular, the three inner circle of Christ's band of men, he does it in this presence, and why? why? Why does he do this? Why does he go to this length to engage in this really unusual act on his part, something that he labored hard to veil for most of his ministry? Why now? Why here at this juncture in Mark's record does he do this? Well, he does it really and simply for one reason. He does it for you. Mindful of you, even in these days in the first century, mindful of your great need as he, the greater Moses, the the greater prophet, the greater son of Moses, the one that Moses himself even said that every man should listen to, might descend from the mountain of Revelation, the new Mount Sinai, To come and redeem sinners, not from a land of Egypt, like Moses in type did as he descended the mountain and came into Egypt to free the people through the ten signs that God gave to that land inflicted upon. No, no, not through might or force, but by the eternal spirits he might deliver you and me from that that figurative picture of Egypt, the land of misery and sin. And that's what he does, of course, as we continue to read through the Gospel of Mark. You come very much to that place not too many words later, even in the same chapter. Jesus tells 
his disciples once again of his mission as he descends to the mountain of glory into the abyss of sin and misery that he might rescue you and me from our greatest need. It is easy, I think, sometimes to miss this, especially in this chapter. This chapter has been subjected to what I will affectionately refer to as abuse by many well-meaning Bible teachers, trying somehow to be creative with what is plainly obvious in the passage. In the obvious points that Mark and all of the parallel accounts seeks to demonstrate is that the greater Moses, who in picture and type freed a people from redemption in Egypt, the greater Moses, Christ himself, is going to free a people. And he does, doesn't he? If you're here this morning, you know something of this greater Moses. You know the Lord Jesus Christ. You have been redeemed by his blood. You have been freed from Egypt. You've been freed from your own misery and sin. You're never going to have to return there. You don't need to return there. You won't return there. What awaits you is the glory that Christ has already secured for you. But that glory that awaits you came at a great cost. And it came through the misery and suffering of the glorified Son, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Do you understand? I know you you will say, of course I know. Do you understand the degree of suffering and misery Christ experienced? The truth of the matter is, brothers and sisters, you don't, and neither do I. I can read about it in the Word of God. I can somehow approach the idea of what it must have been like for him. But I will never, ever get to the depths of it. Why? Why won't you? Why won't I? Because you're not him. You're not the Son of God. You will never understand in the way he understood and understands what was necessary absolutely without discussion, necessary that you might be freed from Egypt, from sin, from misery. But it's through that that he leads you. And today still leads his people to the place not of Canaan, not of some parcel of land somewhere in the world, but a better country. The country that he's gone to prepare for you and me. You see, everything that's happening to you in this life is a result of this greater Moses who descended from this mount of glory that he might lead you out of misery. Everything that's happening right now, even the Lord's Day, this worship service today, is designed by this suffering Savior that he might deliver you safely to the land of hope, to the land of promise. You need to see and know that. You need to behold something of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. This account here in Mark's gospel falls near the midpoint of his gospel, almost directly in the center. Now, that's significant, I think, 
uh, in literary, in a, in a lit, from a literary point of view, it sits in the, almost in the literary middle of Mark's accounts. And sometimes that communicates something of the centrality of this event. There's been repeated ignorance of the 12 disciples as to the mission of Christ. There's been repeated misunderstanding as to the mission and work of the Messiah, who is the one who will lead people to their heavenly hope and rest. It's here that Jesus decides, he determines to show his disciples, to show them something of himself, something of a peak behind the veil as to who it is they're really dealing with. Not the Son of Man now, as it were, the Son of God, the glory of Christ. They're going to see this. They're going to see it in full living color. It is, in fact, a divine revelation given here in this chapter. Modeled after another great revelation. What revelation is that? That revelation that happened in Exodus chapter 3 in the entire Sinai narrative in which God Himself in all of His glory showed Himself to His people. First to a man, Moses, at the burning bush. And then to the people through the signs of Egypt and then to them on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 in the giving of the law and then in his descension from the mountain down to the place of the tabernacle in which he dwelled in the midst of his people. And why did he do all of that? That he might be with them. They might be like him. They might do and live as holy lives before him that they might be rescued from their sin. This is why Jesus descends this mountain. He doesn't stay up there. He comes down to free you and me from the land of misery. And so I want to show you this morning, with God's help, the glory of the Son of God. As the greater Moses on the new Mount Sinai, who will descend to speak to and save his people. I want to show you here in these verses, this these common story that we all know the story. Do you know the story? We know the facts. Do we know what lies behind it? I want to show you the glory of the Son of God. As the greater Moses on the new Mount Sinai, who will descend to speak to and save his people. To save you, to save me. That's what he did. That's what he's doing today. Two points as we consider these verses together this morning. First, the glory of the Son of God. We'll see that in the first six verse, uh, verses 2 through 6. And I know I apologize. There's no outline in the bulletin as usual. But I think you've heard me preach enough. Three years, almost to the day now. You should be able to follow this outline. It's not a complicated one. First, the glory of the Son of God, verses 2 through 6. And then the affirmation of the Father, verses 7 and 8. Let's first consider the glory of of the Son of God. We note this in the setting itself as it begins this narrative, as Mark highlights it for us. It it may seem to you as subtle. It may seem to you as no big deal. He's just telling a story after all. And so he starts in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain 
by themselves. We don't know exactly what mountain it is. Uh, we can speculate. We can guess. Uh, we can reason with the, 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 very chrono- the various chronologies of the ministry of Christ and kind of get close somewhere. It's irrelevant. What matters is that he goes up into a mountain. The time of this particular event, as Mark records it for us, is after six days. You might be tempted to think, six days, let's see, creation. I'll bet you that's where he's going. Nope, not going there. Good guess, though. You wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been a terrible guess. No. Six days. Six days from what? Well, six days from the events that just transpired in the, the, the eighth chapter, in which there we take note of the fact that it's that where Peter makes that glorious confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then gets confused by what all that means, right? And then gets rebuked by Jesus, and then Jesus noticing all these followers, all these people coming after him because of the things that he can do, all the wonderful miracles he's able to perform, turning water into wine and, and healing the sick, the line, all important He says, look, if you wish to come after me, you better learn to take up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. If you want to gain your your life, you better be willing to lose it for my sake. And if you try to save your life, then you're going to lose it. All of these things, six days from this narrative, discourse that Christ is engaged in in chapter 8, Mark tells us, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. However, there is a strong significance between Mark's reference to the six days and the other prophet, the one who said, there's coming a prophet like me, better than me, you need to listen to him. In the days of Moses in Exodus chapter 24 and verses 15 through 18, we take note of the fact that there Moses on a high mountain, in this case on Sinai itself, Exodus 24, verses 15 through 18. Then Moses went up on the mountain. Now listen to the words and ask yourself, does this sound familiar to the events of Mark 9? And Moses went up on a mountain. And the cloud covered the mountain. Hmm. The glory of the Lord that is to say Yahweh or Jehovah, dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. Mark is appealing to a direct link, connection, to the events of the transfiguration, to the Sinai narrative, to the events of Moses, the lesser prophet, the one who in type and shadow picture is the one who would redeem the people from the land of misery, from the land of Egypt. He wants to to see the direct link, the direct connection between Moses the Redeemer, the type of Redeemer, and the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Of this, there is no doubt. You see, now it colors the entire interpretation of this event that we've heard since we were children. It drives the entire issue. It is a chronological parallel with Moses' six-day sojourn on Mount Sinai. The place is mentioned, not specifically. We're just told a high mountain. The place, a high mountain. But in the gospel record... 
And you need to note this. Brothers and sisters, when you read your Bible, whenever you take note of references to a mountain, it almost always, not every time, but almost always has significance. I could bore you maybe with all the, go through the entirety of the canon and give you all the different events of which the high mountain or a mountain place, Sinai, whatever it may be, had huge significance. Think of Exodus 3 on Sinai where the burning bush happened. Think of Mount Ararat and the flood narrative. Think of Mount Moriah with Genesis 22 and the, 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 the attempted slaying of Isaac, the promised son, and then the deliverance, the atonement, the substitute that came. Where? On the mountain, Mount Zion, the mount where the temple would one day dwell. I mean, mountain after mountain, they're huge, significant issues. It's no different in the gospel record. The mountain in the ministry of Christ, any reference to it often carried with it great significance, for instance... I'll give you one, two, three, four, five, seven. I think I can count that far. Yeah, seven. It's tough because it says A, B, C, so I had to quickly translate. He prays on mountains. In Mark's gospel in chapter 6 and verse 46, we note that this is where he prays. He often prayed on a mountain. Why? Because he's closer to God? Is that the idea? No, it had nothing to do with it. To get away from the people? To get along with the God of heaven? To be isolated and separate from the commotion and chaos that was going on at the bottom of the mountain? He prays on mountains. He preaches on mountains too. The Sermon on the Mount. I don't think I'm going out on a limb here. He prays, he preaches, he performs miracles on mountains. Matthew 15, verse 29. John chapter 6, verse 3. Direct reference to being on a mountain. He's tempted on a mountain. You ever think of that? Matthew chapter 4, the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. It was a wilderness mountaintop area. He calls his disciples from the mountain, calls the twelve to be with him, that they might learn from him. He sends them into mission, Matthew 28, verse 16, from a mountain, on the mountain. He accomplishes his passion on what we have affectionately referred to as Mount Calvary. Jerusalem resided as a mountainous area, some 7,000 feet above sea level. Now, I live in Indiana, as you do. I look around. I don't see too many mountains. Sorry, just not there. Pretty flat and kind of boring. One of your sisters just came back from some mountains, I think. I lived in the Smoky Mountains. My daughter lives in the Rocky Mountains. Gorgeous, beautiful. Is there any more glorious mountain than Mount Zion, of which the true temple of God reside, resided and lived and died? His most important work that he ever performed? He prays, he preaches, he performs miracles, he's tempted, he calls his disciples, he sends them into mission, he accomplishes his passion. All on mountains. Why is this so significant? Because 
like mountains elsewhere in Scripture. This mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, as we refer to it, is a place where God and humanity encounter each other. Isn't that true? Think of Exodus 3. God, through the second person of the divine Godhead, the Trinity, speaks to a man. Mount Moriah, Abraham, on a mountain, God God speaks. He he reveals himself to a man that he might atone or substitute for the first command to offer his son. Hear God speaking. In the Mount of Transfiguration, God is going to say something about His Son. He's going to say something that that nobody has seen before. Not the disciples. Not men. It's been veiled for a season. And that veil is going to be pulled back. There's going to be a revelation of the glory of Christ in a way that stupefies even the most sensible of people. It's a mountain of glory, this high mountain. Now, who's there? Well, how smart do you have to be? Peter, James, John. They seem to always get picked for these special events, don't they? I mean, we can surmise, even speculate as to the reasoning for why Peter, James, and John seem to always be the ones invited into the bedroom to watch Jesus raise the, the woman from the dead, or supposedly dead, or this other... Who cares? They're there. Well, one commentator says it this way. There's been many diverse reasons why Jesus picks these three for this glorious event, and it is a glorious event, so glorious that Peter, because he can't help himself, uh, stupidly offers some solution to the problem. I mean, that would have been a disaster. Let's make three tents, stay on the mountain. Jesus stays there too. We got a problem. No exodus, no deliverance from sin. Many diverse reasons. One commentator puts it this way. Peter had led the way to the rest in that notable confession of Christ in chapter 8, as well as in Matthew 16, and is conceived to have some primacy for the orderly beginning of actions in the College of the Apostles. You heard that today in Acts 2, as well as in Acts 3. The first sermons preached in the first century church. James was the first apostle who shed his blood for Christ. John was the most long-lived of them all. And so could the longer testimony of those things which he heard and saw till the church was well gathered and settled. Maybe that's the reason. Who knows? He's guessing just like you are and I am. Doesn't change anything. They're there. That is to say, there's going to be a human witness. A flesh and blood witness to the glory of Christ. But there's two other figures there, too. Who are they? You know these guys. Elijah. Mount Carmel. (laughs) Interesting. Mount Carmel. The prophets of Baal and the comical story of the contest between the two 
one true God and the not-so-true gods, the false gods. And then Moses. Interesting. Moses is there. You know, the one that said, there's going to come after me a prophet greater than me. You need to listen to him. Hmm. These two characters are there. And this is the part of this passage that I suspect and I believe has been subjected to some of the abuse when it comes to an understanding of what this passage is really trying to communicate. Traditionally, the presence of these two men is that one represents law, that would be Moses, and one represents gospel, that would be Elijah. Now, how people come up with these things, I have absolutely no idea. sounds pretty fabricated to me. Sure, Moses did represent the law. He was the lawgiver. That's not without dispute. Moses was a writing prophet. Elijah was a speaking prophet. That's not without dispute either. But how they come up with this very sharp distinction, I will never understand. That's typically the dispensational view of this passage. And since I'm not a dispensationalist, you probably figure you're not going to have to worry about that one. Here's what I think is going on here. And I think this is Mark's intention. If, in fact, this mountain is designed to show something of the glory of Christ in His redeeming work through His suffering in misery, then there could be no better guys to pick than Moses and Elijah. Why? Well, both were men of Sinai. Both of them. Moses is obvious to you. You know you've heard that already in this sermon. Both were men of Sinai. Elijah also. Elijah in 1 Kings 19, verse 7. Horeb equals Sinai. Moses in Exodus 19, Exodus 24, Exodus 3, and on it goes. Both of these men can claim Sinai as a place of their dwelling, a place in which they met something of the glory of God. That's not a debatable subject. Second, both of these men prefigured suffering. Both of them. If it is through the suffering of the Messiah, the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which he might redeem you and me from our sin, this fits naturally, then, that he would have conversation with these two suffering prophets of old. How did Moses suffer? Well, think about the ten signs of Egypt in which there he goes into the courts of Pharaoh and let my people go and Pharaoh mocks the God of heaven, mocks Moses, puts the people under abject misery to the point where the people themselves are ready to stone, ready to kill, ready to eliminate Moses himself. Think about the suffering he must have gone through as he's leading this band of yahoos from the place of Egypt to the place of the promised land, and they're griping and complaining all the time, never seeming to stop. He even says as much. Elijah? What kind of suffering did he experience? Would you like to be chased around by Jezebel? There's a reason why parents don't name their daughters Jezebel. The woman was crazy. She was worse than the king. She wanted to kill him. He regularly suffered at the hands of wicked people. Both of them did. And here in this Mount of Glory, of which the Son of God's glory will be shown, 
we have the two suffering servants of Jehovah of old talking to the suffering servant. The prophets of old who prefigured the prophet to come. They're talking. They're talking to the Lord Jesus Christ. Fully able to identify and enter into what Christ is about to enter into and what he has been dealing with all of his existence as as he's ministered in this world and about what he will eventually enter into of which you and I will never fully understand. Not even they do. And they don't today. And you never will either. And so we have the event, don't we? We get the details of the event as they're there on that mountain with Moses and Elijah. Peter, James, and John are standing kind of off in the, on the, the wing of the stage. I don't know what they call that, but it's over there somewhere off the stage, whatever it is. We have the events. He was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. But right before this event actually gets underway, there's a time of preparation. It's not in Mark's gospel, but if you go to the Luke parallel account in Luke 9 and verse 28, prayer precedes this Mount of Glory. Jesus prays. He prepares for the event, which is unlike anything that anybody's ever witnessed. Now, I think there's probably a whole sermon in that, but I'll just be brief. Hey, look, I'm going to be gone for three weeks, so I'm going to get my three weeks out right now. Or you can wait till I come back and I can do it then. Okay, I'm kidding. For those of you who are visiting, by the way, welcome. I didn't welcome you earlier. Congregation's used to me being a little long-winded. But briefly, because this is a significant event in the life of the Savior, as well as one of the life of the disciples, Jesus prays. There's prayer that goes before it. We don't know what he prayed. We could guess, maybe. Father, open their eyes that they might see something of my glory that I'm about to show to them, that you're about to show to them. Who knows? We know he prayed. What does that teach you and me about prayers of preparation? If the Savior prays before he enters into these activities, isn't that the only time he prays before he enters into activities? He prayed before he chose his disciples. He prays before the Mount of Transfiguration. He prays in the garden before he enters into his passion. He prays. Do you? I got this big decision, Pastor Bill. I don't know what to do. Have you prayed? Oh, yeah, I probably should do that. Why is it always an afterthought? Brothers and sisters, it ought not be. It should be something you do first. Look, I confess, I don't do that either. I start worrying and get nervous and scratching my head and trying to figure it out, get my pen out and start making a list. Ah, Pray. Pray. Jesus prays. Whatever it is he prayed, it was important for him to pray. It was the first priority in the event. Pray. We too, we must pray. And then in the specifics of the event, he's transfigured before his three disciples and Moses and Elijah. 
The text uses an interesting Greek word. It's a word that we get in our English, metamorphosis. There was a change that came over him. Really, in a sense, it wasn't so much as a change as it was in a revealing, a pulling back of that which he already possessed that was hidden from the eyes of human people. Is there any other kind? From humans. He was transfigured in this brilliant description of it in a way that even your bleaching process could not accomplish. Put a different way, it was beyond imagination. You can't comprehend it. The glory of Christ, the veil, the, the um, I forget what they call that on the stage, the curtain. The curtain was lifted that they might see. Wow. This is my Savior. This is Christ. His glory is right before me. You would be like the disciples. What just happened? He was transfigured. It was done to him. The structure of the, of the original is quite clear. It's a, the verb that's used by Mark is in the passive. That is to say that he was transfigured by who? By his Father. Uh, more to the point, by the Spirit of the living God that he might reveal something of the Son of God because that's what the Holy Spirit does. If you have seen or have taken, if you've had a glimpse into the glory of Christ in your life, it is because the Holy Spirit showed it to you. It's not because you were so smart and so intelligent. No, no. It happened because of the Spirit who loves to show the glory of the Son. And He does here. He reveals Christ in all of His beauty. Don't you want to see that? I can't begin to tell you, in the last year, how much I longed for Christ to come back, that I might see His glory, because I am tired of this world. But you know, every Lord's Day, you get to see this event. You see it. Oh, no, no. There's not someone standing up here, and this radiance, and all this is happening. But God knows what you need. And He has crafted His world in such a way for His church that He might show something of the glory of Christ to His people every Lord's Day. You see it in the music you sing, in the scriptures that are read, whether it's from the most difficult of Old Testament passages or the most plain and obvious ones, it's Christ that you get to witness. It happens every Lord's Day. It's a great privilege, much like the disciples there are experiencing this great privilege. You have this great privilege to see the glory of the Son. Is that how you come in here? Is that how I come in here? 
It's so easy as the pastor of the church to come in here and I got a duty to perform. I got things to do. I got boxes to check. I got to follow the bulletin. I got to keep track of what's going on around us and adjust for things that happen in the middle of the worship service, all orchestrated by God's providence. It's so easy to get caught up in all of that business that you miss the glory of Christ in the sermon and in the singing. And if you're not here to see his glory, then why are you here? Why? Do you pray like Christ prayed that they might see his glory? Do you pray that you might see his glory when you walk into this place? That you might see his glory in the reading of his word and the preaching of it? Do you understand that it's only the Spirit of God that can open your mind, any mind, to the eyes and give the eyesight to see the something of the glory of Christ? The three disciples, they had to be shown this. They never saw it before. Now they see. How? Because the Spirit opened their eyes. That's how. They didn't see this glory by their own efforts. You don't see the glory of Christ by your own efforts. That's why we pray, descend to heaven, run the heavens and come down and meet with your people. Show us something of your glory. Show us something of your majesty. Father, we wish to see your glory. Who does this sound like? It sounds like Moses does it on the mountain when he appealed to the God of heaven, show me something of your glory. The greater Moses is showing sinners something of the glory that he has possessed before all worlds. This glory that's going to save and rescue sinners. So as they're there, they're having this conversation, aren't they? Mark doesn't tell us what they're talking about. Some of you are smart Bible students and you know what they're talking about because either I've taught you that or you knew it before, but in either case, you know, but some of you don't. You might read this word and you might, this, this, this event and you might think, well, what the heck are they talking about? There in verse 4, they appeared to them, Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Mark doesn't say what they were talking about. I guarantee you it wasn't about what was for dinner. Or who won the game? Well, what were they talking about? Well, Luke's gospel tells us precisely what it was. They were talking about, and the Greek is very specific, in Luke chapter 9 and verse 31, they were talking about, your translation says departure, the Greek word there is exodon. His exodus. The exodus. The greater exodus that is going to come from the greater Moses who has just showed something of his glory in the face of suffering and misery that he might free you and me from the place of sin and misery and bondage. This is the conversation they're having because it is close. And Moses, I can imagine him talking with the Savior. And boy, I remember those days back then, you know, those people, they didn't like anything I did. But, you know, your father told me to do it. It was hard. And Elijah, you know, those, those people, they followed Baal. They didn't listen. They were hard-headed. And on that mountain of Mount Carmel, I showed the whole watching world something of the glory of God. You can only imagine the intricacies of what they were saying 
but they were talking about his deliverance of you and me from sin. You were the subject of the conversation. The Savior had you on his mind in that words that came out of his mouth. And Moses and Elijah undoubtedly standing in awe, knowing that everything that they spoke about, everything that they did, everything that they taught, all was a picture of this event, this moment in time. The leader of the first exodus, Moses, who led the people to worship on a high mountain. The one who suffered as a picture of the one who would ultimately suffer in every way imaginable. They're talking about his exodus. For our exodus, out of the bondage of sin and death, the greater Moses who would lead his people out of Egypt. And so how did the people respond? Well, Peter, of course, you know Peter, ready to aim. Peter, let's bake three tents. Once again, falling into the trap that he fell into in chapter 8. After hearing the conversation, after witnessing the glory of Christ, what does he want to do? Let's make a tent. We'll hang out up here and we'll order room service and we'll never leave. This is wonderful. Yes, it is. It was wonderful. You could hardly blame them for wanting to leave, for not wanting to leave. Someday you and I will never have to worry about leaving. But if Christ had stayed on that mountain, there would be no salvation. If Moses had stayed on that mountain in front of that burning bush, there would have been no rescue of the people from Egypt. Peter was presumptuous. Peter was impetuous. Let's make three tenths. How magnanimous of him. Let's make three tents. I have this very lengthy quote about that, but I'll just skip it. I think you get the point. Not only was Peter impetuous, speaking for the other two, they were terrified. The text makes it very plain. You would be too, and so would I. Was it Moses? What? A bush that doesn't burn and talks. Okay, I'd like to be running the other way. Thank you very much. Uh, fear. Terrified. They were awestruck. Mark tells us they were terrified. This term that Mark chooses to employ is used only one other place in the New Testament. And that's in Hebrews chapter 12, and verses 18 to 21. And I'm going to read it because it matters. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, So terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. This is the word. It's the only other time it's used in the New Testament. On a mountain, referencing Moses, 
referencing now by Mark, the greater Moses. And they are terrified as they see the cloud come from above and descend upon it. And they hear the voice coming from it. Much in the same way in Exodus 19 when the, mountain, when the cloud descended upon the, on Mount Sinai and the people were afraid, they were terrified. Why? Because of the living presence of God there. Now you have God in all of His glory with them. Each Lord's Day we come to the mountain of God. Mount Providence. Call it whatever you want. We come not afraid, not terrified, but in reverence and awe of the God of heaven. The triune God. Sadly, too often we come in. Maybe you don't, and if you don't, wonderful. I'm, it's great. But sometimes, if you're like me, we come in here again and we just check the box and we forget who's here. We forget that the God who made heaven and earth, who spoke from the burning bush, who delivered the people from Egypt, who rescued Abraham and his son from Mount Moriah, who delivered his people safely to the promised land, who's delivering you and me to the promised land, he is a God to be feared. And we must stand back in awe of him. Not impetuous like these three disciples, but in reverential fear of the God of heaven. Well, an affirmation comes hastingly, hasting, moving a little more quickly now. There's an affirmation of the Father in light of everything that they have witnessed, everything that has occurred thus far. A cloud comes. A further key to understanding the transfiguration is the cloud itself which throughout Scripture is the symbol of God's presence and glory. I've already read from the Exodus 24 account, when the cloud descended upon the mountain upon Moses, it is a representation, it is a picture of the divine presence there on that mountain that day. Now we know it's true that he's there because he speaks, doesn't he? The God from heaven, the Father, speaks. According to Mark, the cloud enveloped or even overshadowed them. It's a very rare verb in the Greek New Testament. In Exodus 40, in the Septuagint translation, it's used to describe the cloud that filled the tabernacle with the glory of God. That Shekinah glory. The glory cloud, as it's sometimes referenced. There at the end of Exodus... When the tabernacle is now built and it's sitting in the middle of the people and the, the, the glory of God descends from heaven in a cloud and dwells in that most holy place, this is exactly what you're witnessing on this Mount of Transfiguration. The exact same thing. It's used in 1 Kings 8, verses 10 and 11 to describe the cloud that filled Solomon's temple. The very presence of God. In Luke 1 and verse 35, a passage that throws special light on its use in the transfiguration is the overshadowing of Mary. It's the exact same Greek word, this cloud that overshadows the event. That overshadowing took place 
not upon a mountain, but upon a woman, Mary. This overshadowing by the power of the Most High at the Annunciation of Luke 1.35. The cloud symbolizes the divine presence that speaks to Jesus and the disciples. The cloud is indeed the very presence of God symbolizing that in Jesus, even more than in the tabernacle of old, God dwells bodily with humanity. What? Yes. God dwells with men. The God-man. As they witness the glory of the God-man there on that mountain, in that cloud, hearing this voice that speaks. Very much reminiscent, right, to the baptism. Very similar language, very similar words. My beloved son, he says. Words that echo back to the baptism of the Savior. A baptism that identifies the Son of Man with us, with me, with you. And he says to those three disciples, and there was nobody else there except Moses and Elijah, listen to him. What is it we should hear? I'm the Savior of sinners. I am the greater Moses. I'm going to deliver my people. I'm going to leave this mountain. I'm going to come down. I'm going to rescue them. What should you listen to when it comes to the glory of Christ? Well, one commentator, he puts it this way. And if I find it, I'll read it to you. Here, got it. He says, throughout the gospel, Mark portrays Jesus pleading with people to hear and understand. It's everywhere. Revelation 1 to 3, not Revelations, Revelation 1 to 3, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. What, what, what should we be hearing? The voice from heaven now makes the same plea of the disciples. The divine injunction is necessary for the disciples to grasp the one point they cannot accept that the Son of Man must suffer. This is what they must hear. This glorified Christ is going to suffer at the hands of sinful, wicked men. This injunction links the transfiguration inseparably with Peter's confession, the Messiah must suffer in chapter 8. And so too must the disciples in verses 34 to 38. This, is, this the disciples must understand if they are to understand the person and mission of Jesus. Christology leads to discipleship. Discipleship flows from Christology. Listen to Him designates Jesus not only as the prophet who would follow Moses, but also as the son who must suffer and who calls disciples to share in his suffering. It is God's ratification of the way to the cross for Jesus and the disciples. The road to glory leads through the valley of suffering. Listen. Do you listen when Jesus speaks? He's been speaking for 50 minutes. Yes, I have a clock up here, and I can't see that one, so don't worry about it. Have you been listening? Can you summarize anything I've said at the last 50 minutes? 
about this event that took place in the life of the Savior for you? Have you been hearing Him? Each Lord's Day, you come. You, I assume you want to be here. You're here. The Word is read. It's, it's preached. It's the living voice of Christ for you through a weakness of a man who blunders it often, but it's still the living voice of Christ insofar as it's faithful to the text of the Bible. God preached an infallible sermon when He spoke from that cloud that day. There's no such thing up here, but it's still the means that God gives to you that you might be rescued from the land of misery, that you might be strengthened as you journey from that land of misery to the land that is great and beautiful and wonderful. Do you listen? Do you hear something of the voice of Christ? Do you hear the glory of Christ? I know you might think, well, how can you hear the glory of Christ? You can hear it. Do you take note of the Savior? Peter, James, and John were told to listen. Listen. Not get impetuous, Peter. Shut up. Listen to him. He has the words of life. He's my beloved son. I'm pleased with him. You must listen to him. Brothers and sisters, you must listen to Christ. You have no hope without him. Oh, but I was, I've been a Christian for 35 years. I'm good. Really? So you've stopped listening to Jesus? This never ends. All of our days. It is the thing that will ensure you get to the promised rest that God has promised you. So you come, you listen to the word as read, as preached, as proclaimed. Do you hear and then do what you hear? The significance of this entire event is really simple. Christ is the greater Moses who all of those in the new exodus are to hear. I don't want to hear what Moses has to say per se. Yes, I know he wrote the first five books in Psalm 90, and I listened to that, but that's the word of God. I want to hear from Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, I want to hear from him. That he's greater than Moses. He's the greater prophet, the greatest prophet. He is the one who is the good shepherd of the sheep. He is the one who descends from this mountain. Notice the very last verse after this all transpired. Poof, everybody's gone and it's just Jesus left there. And what happens right after this event? They leave the mountain. He's the one who will reveal himself and go down the mountain to rescue you and me from sin. And so you've seen, I hope, something of the glory of Christ and all of His beauty. And over the next number of weeks, somewhere in December we'll begin, I'm going to show you much more of it. But you've seen that glory veiled in His suffering as the greater Moses that was required to secure your forgiveness in the exodus from sin. It was only through His suffering that you are spared the suffering. Only there. He stays on that mountain in that glory-filled environment, and you are still lost in your sin. 
more to the point, if he doesn't descend from the greatest mountain to this place in the valley of misery, you have no hope either. He is indeed the greater Moses. We must reflect on him, his work. We must hear him. We must obey him. We must praise him for this work that he has done. We're going to sing these words in a minute. But we've sung them before. The glory of Christ is the man of sorrows. The man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined, ruined sinners, to reclaim, hallelujah, what a Savior. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word and the glory of our Savior. Mindful of the reality that we as fallen people long, though, to see, we will someday. Today we see it by faith. We believe in the all-glorious Lord of heaven and earth. Someday we'll see it by sight. May you hasten the day in which we may not see a glimpse of the glory of Christ, but we see it all the time. Until then, Father, help us. May we often meditate on the glory of Christ wrapped around, wrapped in His misery and suffering. For our sake, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.